For the evening service tonight, we begin, of course, the service at 6 o'clock. Choir will be here at 5, and men's prayer at 5.30, and then Brother Bill Petit will be with us, one of our missionaries, and I do hope that you'll be here to share in service with he and his family. Romans chapter 1 this morning. The Bible says in Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So reads the first seven verses, which so reads the first verse or the first sentence of the book of Romans chapter 1. That's one sentence, seven verses and one sentence. It sort of gives you a preview of what the Apostle Paul is going to do. He's going to take one sentence here and he's just going to chunk it full of things that this particular book of the Bible will show you and me. And I hope by the time we finished in these 433 verses that make up these 16 chapters, I hope that your heart will be as enlarged as mine is just in anticipation of what's to follow. In order to get us ready for it, this day and this message is sort of preliminary and introductory. And I hope that you'll take heed to what we have to share with you to start the process. First off, let me begin by telling you, and I think it was my granddaughter, Lauren, that brought to my attention a week or so ago, we were having a discussion, and she brought up about the French Revolution. And uh, I had a, a book on my desk at the time, and it was open to a page in a hist history book. And in that history book, there was a, a reference made to the French Revolution. And I began to breeze through some of the things there, and it was a couple of parallels that very quickly came to light. One of them was, and it is interesting to me to this day, that in the last years of the 1700s, there were really two revolutions going on. There was a, the, actually two draftings of two constitutions taking place. Two nations were being formed, in a sense, and both of them were showing different attitudes toward the Christian faith. For instance, in France, it was a revolving or revolting, as it was called, in the 1791 that was not outside the country, but inside the country. France was making an all-out effort to make that country, as one historian of the day called it, a secular state devoid of all religious influences. It's also pointed out by their historians that, one, the campaign was to de-Christianize the entire country of France and do it rapidly. Some local authorities in the city of France demanded that the former Metropolitan Church of Notre Dame be dedicated anew to the, quote, Temple of Reason. So on November the 10th, 1793, a civic festival was held in Paris. In the new temple, words, quote, to philosophy, end of quote, were etched across the entranceway. The goddess of reason, personified by a French actress, was carried into the temple on the shoulders of men dressed in Roman guard. The leaders also at the same time ordered that all churches be closed and converted to poorhouses and schools. 
the church property, the land then was sold and the money given to the state. Church bells that donned the Belfry Towers were all melted down and used to cast cannons. The leaders changed the calendar of France to eliminate the seven-day rest and worship. They turned it into ten days. The National Assembly went a step further and passed a a resolution deliberately declaring, quote, and this is from their constitution, there is no God, end of quote. In strong and rather clear contrast to all that, in this country of America, at a similar time, our founding fathers, the leaders of this nation, put together one of the greatest documents that has ever been penned by mortal man, the Constitution of the United States of America. It contains 4,400 words. It is the oldest and it is also the shortest written Constitution of any peoples of the world. A man by the name of Jacob Chalice, he's a Pennsylvania General Assembly clerk, wrote the Constitution, pinned it for a fee of $30, $265 in today's money. 39 men signed it. Thomas Jefferson did not. He was in France dealing with the revolution to part. The oldest person to sign it was Benjamin Franklin at 81. He's in such poor health, he had to have help to steady his hand. History says that as he signed it, tears streamed his face. The youngest man to sign the Constitution was Jonathan Dayton. He was 26 years of age, and he was from New Jersey. This great document was stored in various cities in the United States until 1952, when it was then placed in the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., During the day, pages 1 and 4 of the Constitution are displayed in a bulletproof case. At night, the pages are lowered into a vault behind a five-ton door that are designed to withstand a nuclear explosion. The entire Constitution is only seen one time a year, and that's on September the 17th in commemoration of the signing by the framers on September the 17th. 1787. As precious as this important document is to our United States of America and to its freedom, there is a document that is of greater worth. It is the Holy Scriptures. And the Word of God is divided into 66 books. And in these 66 books, there is one of these books that has been described as the Constitution of the Christian Faith. That is the Book of Romans. And I wholeheartedly concur with that appraisal and description. It is that the Book of Romans technically, and from our standpoint, is more important than the United States Constitution. And for one of many, many reasons. But one reason that stands out to most people is the fact that the Constitution of the United States of America is is largely confined as far as interest to this nation. But everywhere there is a born-again believer who loves the Scriptures in the world, in the universe, even if it be a space rocket flying around the moon and there be a Christian there and he has a copy of the scriptures, it won't be long until he'll find himself often returning to the great book of Romans for the foundation of much of his faith. So it is a worldwide interest book, not just from the United States of America. One Christian historian wrote, There has never been, and probably there never will be, an important spiritual movement in the world 
in the history of the church that cannot be traced in cause and effect to a deeper knowledge of the truth of the book of Romans. I am reminded historically, though I'm not a great fan in reading about him, though I have some of his books, of Augustine. Augustine was one day sitting in the garden of a friend. As he sat in this garden on this bench, there were children just across the way that were singing a song in Latin. As they were singing the song, Augustine sitting there was contemplated the wickedness of his life. As he heard the children singing, they were singing the words, take up and read, take up and read. First off, Augustine had never heard a chorus of kids singing that kind of song with those kind of words. And as Augustine had just said, put his hand down on the bench to brace himself, he put his hand down upon a scroll that a friend had left there. When he saw the scroll, he opened it up, and when he opened that scroll up, it opened to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which read, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strive and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. He laid that scroll down, and by his own account, he was never the same. By Augustine's confessions in Confession chapter 8, he tells about that event and how it was at that point he came to know Jesus Christ, the one to save. And Augustine went on to be a theologian and a great leader as far as the church was concerned. A thousand years later, a thousand years later, in Wittenberg, Germany, in a University of Wittenberg classroom, a monk by the name of Martin Luther was teaching the book of Romans. As he stood in that class to teach that book of Romans, on more than one occasion, Martin Luther stopped and paused by things that he said to the class that he had written in his notes. As he did, he confessed that he was troubled and to a large degree convicted of what the book of Romans was saying that was running counter to his Catholic faith. And here is what he wrote. I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself reborn. End of quote. And this man who believed and came to believe that justification before God is by faith alone with no mixture of works whatsoever. And it was Martin Luther who left the Roman Catholic Church and nailed those 95 theses on the front door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And this man, years later, had a profound effect on another ordained minister. In fact, this ordained minister was John Wesley. John Wesley was a of the Church of England at the time. He was ordained to the church and he preached tremendous messages, it is said, even in his state. But he was wrestling with confusion of a clear gospel. And he was also very concerned about a genuine experience of salvation, which he wrote in some of his books later. And in that context, he went one night on a Wednesday night, which tells you something he was unwilling. He says in his own testimony, he had no interest in going, but someone prompted him and pushed him and prodded him until finally he went. One evening, uh, Aldersgate Chapel, and he sat there, 
And a man who was getting up and speaking was speaking from, in fact, reading verbatim the preface to the epistle of Romans, the book of Romans, written by Martin Luther. A book which I have in my library and the preface which I have read on more than one occasion. And I must say the preface of the book is half as long as the book. And this man was just reading the preface to the book of Romans that Martin Luther had written about Romans. And it was under those circumstances that Wesley, well, let me just tell you what he said. Quote, about a quarter before nine that evening, while he, talking about the man who was reading the preface, was describing the change which God worked in the hearts through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt at that moment I did trust Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. End of quote. The book of Romans. And if I were to go a step further than that, not just with Augustine and how it affected Luther and how it affected John Wesley, but if I were to take it a step further, I probably would not be in a small number of people because I was one of those who had someone take the book of Romans and take me down the Romans road and show me how to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just curious. How many folks in this room, when you came to faith in Christ, someone used predominantly the book of Romans to show you how to be saved? Would you lift, just lift your hands? I too. Thank you. The book of Romans. It's not to say that the gospel is not presented elsewhere, but it is to say that this book, as seemingly above all other books of the New Testament, have a systematized and a very clearly precise set of goals by which the Apostle Paul writes to us to explain to us the great theology of our faith. So I say to you as we begin this book, I don't think it is like any other book we've studied together. I think this book of Romans has the potential to clarify in your heart and your mind understanding the doctrinal faith that we hold as believers in a way that you have never embraced it. And so I hope that you will, like I pray as we begin, Lord, open mine eyes that I might see all the truth in these 16 chapters, 433 verses that are in this book, and speak to my heart in the way that it changes my life, the way that you've changed others as they too have taken the challenge. And before we get to the text of the Scripture, I'll actually dig into a text, I want to take you through five points concerning an introductory kind of thing, and it'll take this hour to do it. First off, let's talk about it's written by written by look at verse number one and the first word it is paul that's the man who wrote the book written by the apostle paul romans 1 1 and in a sense it is a miracle that of the grace of god that this man's name even appears here first off paul is the only writer of the bible get this he's the only writer of the bible to have discarded his jewish name and kept his gentile name he was born in Tarsus. He was in a city known for its Greek learning and its culture, its educational values. And he sat at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel. He became a Pharisee. He was born into Roman citizenship. All of these things were to fit him for the writing of this great book of Romans. And I say to you, probably there was nobody and probably never has been and probably never will be anyone who hated Christ, hated Christians, and hated the Christian faith more than this educated Jew. For instance, in the first place you'll find him in Acts chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can take a look. We'll spend a moment here. At Acts chapter 7, 
Acts chapter 7 in verse number 58, and cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet whose name was Saul. That's the first appearance of this guy, Saul. And what's interesting about that is that this very first appearance is that he is at the stoning of a believer. And that sort of set the tone for who this educated Jew was. A man who hated Christ, hated the Christian faith, and hated everybody who had anything to do with it, and especially to those who propagated. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committing to them to prison. And that's not all he did. Turn to chapter number 9. Look at verse number 1. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any in this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. The good news is that all that changed drastically, miraculously, eternally in chapter number 9. When you come down to chapter 9 and verse number 5, he meets the Lord. Verse 5, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Verse 6, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee that thou must do. Paul doesn't quit there. Paul gives us then a, a very clear testimony of what happened and the circumstances relating from his perspective in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Tremendous testimony of the fellow who in the very beginning here is labeled or classified as the man that the book is written by. Then look, if you would, in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 7, who the book is written to. Not only written by Paul, but who it's written to. Look at verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. This was what we would classify as the church, people who are come together. And as you go through the book of Romans, it seems pretty clear they had home chapter house church and they were in association of those until they were structurally put together in a corporate body but the fact is he was writing to the believers there the beloved of God the church of Jesus Christ that was assembling in that particular province the fact is that the Roman Catholic Church has for years taught and written into the historical books that Peter was the founder of the church at Rome the fact is when you read the book of Romans and you begin to search that out you'll find one that does not square with the Bible for what the Bible says or in some cases for what the Bible does not say. Let me give you three very quick reasons about it. One, the first thing is that when you go to the last chapter of the book of Romans chapter 16 you'll notice there that Paul salutes about 27 men by name. And what's interesting about it you think about it. If Peter had been the founder of the church of Rome, his name would have appeared among the 27. And it does not. 
Paul would have been absolutely deliric of his idea, his uh, responsibility, his duty, if he uh, had not put Peter's name in there, if in fact Peter was the framer of the church at Rome. Secondly, and it's important here, that in Romans chapter 15 and verse 20, Paul said this, he said, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Paul's mission was very clear by that statement in that sentence in that verse. And that is that he didn't go to a place where there was already a man of God, an apostle, someone who was already working and establishing a local Bible-believing church. Paul said, that's not my intent to to go in and crowd out another guy. My job is is to go in and find people who have no structure ministry and where there is no one to lead the ministry and to help establish those churches. Well, that would present a problem. If Peter was already there, then Paul could not have written Romans 15, 20. That would have been a lie. He would have been going in and crowding Peter out. So for Paul to have written under the inspiration of God, Romans 15, 20, it is not likely, yea, verily, not possible that Peter would have been there. Third reason is this. When you go back to the book of Acts and you begin to search out any references to the book or or to the place called Rome, there's one thing that Dr. Luke, who was the historian of the early church, not one time, not once, mentions Peter as the founder of of the church at Rome. And it's very clear, if anybody was going to mention it, it would have been Luke, the historian, who gave us such information that you'll find nowhere else in all the Bible. So the question would come back then, how was it founded? Under what circumstances? Well, I think it's very clear. If you would go over to the book of, uh, of Acts, and we, I'll just make a reference here. You don't have to turn if you don't like. But in Acts chapter 2... You have verses like uh, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Verse 9, The Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the dwellers of Mesopotamia, in Judea, Cappadocia, in Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, verse number 10, Pamphylia, in Egypt, in the parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and the strangers of Rome. And strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. I don't think there's any doubt that there were some folks showed up on the day of Pentecost who were strangers of Rome. And I think those folks who came to Pentecost that day are the ones who heard the gospel. I personally believe they were among the 3,000 who were saved. And I believe they were among a group of people who went back to Rome and I believe began to be the seed from which the church at Rome would one day grow and blossom and produce the fruit that it did. I don't believe there's any doubt that that's the process that took place for this church to be established. So you have it's written by Paul. It's written to the church at Rome. Then I want you to see where it was written from. Where it's written from. And that's important because we just finished Second Corinthians and Second Corinthians and Romans fit like hand in glove because it's written from Corinth. You remember Paul in chapter 13 was talking about, I'm going to pay this third visit to you. Paul wrote the book of Romans when he made the third visit to Corinth. He wrote the book of Romans when he paid his third visit to the church at Corinth. He went to go get that money that he had been collecting or the church had been collecting so he could take it up to the Jerusalem church. And when he came to Corinth that time, he spent time there and he wrote the church at Rome. And he did. He wrote these 16 chapters, this epistle, 433 verses to communicate to the brethren there. He wrote it from Corinth. We know that from several points, but one of them is that which is found in in the book of Romans itself. In chapter 16, verse number 23, it says, Gaius mine host, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. 
Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you, and Cortus, a brother. The fact of the matter is, history proves that the Gaius here was a Corinthian wealthy businessman. And he was staying, Paul was staying with Gaius, and it's from Gaius's home that Paul writes the book of Romans. And the fact of the matter is, it's not just the fact that Paul wrote it, it's not that he wrote it to the church at Rome, that it was written from Corinth, but here's a purpose that Romans chapter 1 gives you for why it was written. Why did he write the book? Chapter 1, verse number 11. For I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. There's no doubt that his intent was that eventually he would get there. And this letter was intended to be what we call the prelate. It was supposed to be the foundational work. So that when he got there, immediately he could get into the ministry. And there would indeed be spiritual fruit to be brought and spiritual gifts to be imparted and received. So he gets that point. But notice something else. And he said he needed to get them clear on the gospel. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 15. He says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are Rome also. Indication is, he wants to make dead sure that he, these people to whom he writes, will understand and do fully understand the gospel and all of its ramifications. So, no surprise then, when we come to chapter 1, most of what we'll be into in chapter 1 of Romans will be dealing with the gospel. And making sure that we understand it, making sure that, that what the Bible says about it, that we have not added to nor taken from. And so Paul's very, very in-depth teaching about the message that he wanted to deliver was the gospel. There's something else he was also writing about, and that is found in chapter number 1, verse number 12. He wanted to encourage the new believers, but he also wanted their encouragement. Verse 12, he says, That is, that I may be comforted together with you, by the mutual faith, both you and me. I don't think there's any doubt Paul the Apostle had gone through some rather disturbing and maybe discouraging events in Corinth. Corinth was not one of his best experiences. And all the problems in the church and the, the conflicts that he had faced there, the, the doubting of his apostleship, the challenging of his authority, there's no doubt that that was not one of the highlights of his life. But what the Apostle Paul wanted now was a group of believers who are fresh start. And I believe that's what the church at Rome was going to give him. And so Paul says, I look forward to coming to be with you. We can share our mutual faith. I can be an encouragement to you and you can be an encouragement to me. And I believe that's a, a part of what the church never allow itself get away from. No matter how long you've been in the faith, there is still a need for you to be encouraged in your faith. And there's also a need for you to encourage. And Paul fits that very well in this particular case. So it's not only a matter of it was written by Paul, it was written to the church at Rome, it was also written for the purpose, or written from Corinth, but it was written for the purpose of these things we mentioned. There's a fifth one, and that is this thing of it was delivered by Phoebe. In chapter 16, I called your attention to two verses. Chapter 16, 1 and 2, it says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she had need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, a helper of many, and of myself also. That's an interesting thing, and I 
so very much appreciate this woman as brother uh, uh, brother Kendrick said last Sunday evening talking about the influence that ladies had had on starting the men for mission program a men for mission program uh, started by the impetus of an encouraging woman to start that what's interesting about this is that most accounts would prove certainly that Phoebe had at least some help in getting Paul that manuscript to those Roman believers in chapter 16, where he commends her for this, well, she was, a, uh, without a doubt, a very saved lady and had a good public testimony, that's for sure. She was serving in a local church, and that's a commending thing. That's a, not to say it's, it's, it's great to be saved, but it needs to be saved in serving. And that's exactly what Phoebe was. She was also, evidently, from historian's account, she was a, a, a business lady. She was going to Rome. She made trips back and forth from Corinth to Rome. And evidently, she was going to Rome, and Paul had asked, Ask her to deliver this manuscript to the brethren at Rome. So what had to happen was for them to trust her, Paul had to commend her to that fellowship and said, look, I want you to take her and do whatever you can to help her because she's helped many, many people. And, and I think in context of that, that's the basis for him saying, look, what she's delivering to you is really from me. Trust her. Take what she gives you. Even a, a French historian and a, and a very skeptical, religious skeptical French historian, Joseph Renan, said this, and at least he said one thing I agree with. Quote, when Phoebe sailed away from Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. End of quote. I tend to agree. And oh, how I thank the Lord for this great life-changing book of Romans. And I hope while we study it that it will change your life. But I want to make one thing very clear as we close this part of the message. And that is that technically it is not a book that changes people's lives. It is the truth in a book. And in the book of Romans it's crystal clear that the, the sinner focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And his gospel, the message that he proclaimed. We know that John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. We know that. It is also interesting when you come to the book of Romans chapter 1 that it will state in there that these people of which Paul writes, these heathen, these pagans, he says that they actually changed the truth of God into a lie. What's an interesting thing about that, they may change, wrongly change what he says, but they cannot change who he is. And because they can't change who he is, because Jesus never changes, the fact of the matter is he met and saved Paul on the Damascus Road. He can meet and save people in the New Life Baptist Church this morning and every morning. And the fact of the matter is that this Lord Jesus Christ still lives today making intercession for those who do believe. So he's just as much alive today as he was the day that he met Paul on the Damascus Road. I found it interesting, uh, an article that I picked up and, uh, and made a copy of actually some time ago. And you remember back in the book of Corinthians, we talked about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I mentioned a book. In fact, I mentioned a couple books. But one of the books was a, a book written by uh, a man by the name of Gilbert West. Uh, he was a, uh, he and Lord Littleton were lawyers in, uh, in England. Both of them were unbelievers. And what's interesting in this article is that as unbelievers, they decided that they were going to set out as lawyers to prove that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. And 
when I preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, we talked about the resurrection, and I made mention of this book. And one of the men of our church located the book and told me where I could buy it. The book sells for about $650. So it is no small book. It is no insignificant book. And the other book, I think, is 395 So there are two books at West and Littleton's books. And what's interesting about it is that while Littleton and West talked about this, decided that this is what they were going to do, West was to undertake to write about the resurrection of Jesus, while Littleton was to set out to disprove that the Apostle Paul was converted on the Damascus Road. So while Littleton was working to prove that Paul was not a converted believer in Christ, West was setting out to prove that Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave. Well, in these meetings, they had periodical report meetings where they came back to their offices, their lawyer offices, and they sat down and they discussed what they were finding and what they were locating and and sort of give and take, as it were, questions from the other's perspective. What was interesting, among the first meetings, it is said, quote, he says, if we be honest in this matter, we should at least investigate every aspect of these issues. They agreed to do that. So at one of their meetings, when they came together, it was said that West told Littleton that there was something on his mind. And he said he felt he must share it. So he set out to do so. He said that as he had been studying the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, he had come to feel that there was something to it since it was very well attested. Littleton replied that he was glad that West had spoken as he had because on his part he had come to feel there was some truth to the stories of Paul's road, Damascus Road conversion. Later, after they had finished their works and the two met again, Littleton said to his friend Gilbert, Gilbert West, he says, as I have been studying the evidence and weighing it by the recognized law and the legal process of evidence, I have become satisfied that Saul of Tarsus was converted as the New Testament says he was and that Christianity is true just like it declares. I have therefore written my book from that perspective. West then replied that in the similar way he had become convinced of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection, had come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ himself and had written his book in defense of the Christian faith. Now, few people would be surprised at that. One reason, because I told you the story once before. But few people would understand the significance of why they would attach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the foundational stone of our faith, with the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It is because he wrote the book of Romans. In writing the book of Romans, and a book that sets forth so clearly the foundation of all of what we believe in, and it is the epistle of the church, as we say, the fact of the matter is, if they could disprove Paul's conversion, then they would tear out the book of Romans from your Bible. And so when these men set out, they knew that this was probably the most articulate spokesman for the Christian faith of anyone outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And to dismiss Paul would not only tear out Romans, but it would tear out all the other epistles of the New Testament that he also wrote. There would be nothing left concerning the the truth of the church and its operation. These men were not stupid. They were very wise. But they were also men of which the grace of God was demonstrated because both these men, Littleton and West, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and wrote their books in defense of the Christian faith. My friend, this morning... It is an exciting thing to me that this is the book of the Bible that you and I will be 
embarking on a journey for the next maybe year or so and maybe longer. But I do believe that in that period of this journey that there ought to be some spiritual changes that would take place in our life. So for us today, I'd like for you to sit out as I did to say to the Lord that I want to be changed more into your likeness and I want the truths of the book of Romans to do just that. And first of all, if you're here and you never trusted Christ to save you, then I'd invite you to join many of the folks in this auditorium who walked down the Romans road and found that faith in Jesus Christ is real, transforming, and dynamic. And it's something that is not just a religious kind of connotational thought or, or cliche, but it's real. Jesus Christ changes people's lives when they embrace Him by faith. And so this morning, if you're here and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this would be the place to start as we start this new journey in this new book of the Bible for us. So I hope that this is a truth for you. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, you will. If you know Christ, then I hope you'll pray, Lord, help me to grow spiritually as we start this journey in this book. May it change my life as it's changed so many others. May it, may it begin a historical uh, alteration of those things in my life that are not pleasing to you and that can make me what I ought to be and a servant in your hands at your disposal to your glory. I hope you will. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And Father, especially for this book of Romans, as we anticipate beginning this new study together as a church, I pray right now that you may speak to our hearts and work in our lives. And I pray that anyone and everyone who's here this morning who has never believed on you, trusted you as personal Savior, that they may do so today before they leave. Help them, Father, I pray, to understand that the book of Romans is an excellent guide toward salvation in Jesus Christ. No book of the Bible probably says more about the gospel than the book of Romans. No book in the Bible makes it more clear that our hope is not in what we do and what works we can accomplish, but what Christ has accomplished than is the book of Romans. What a wonderful book. What great prospects it holds before us. And so I pray right now that you would help us to be prepared for the journey by helping and making sure our own hearts are fully, completely trusting Christ and Christ alone for the salvation that we have. Speak to us now as we wait before you. And those who ought to come for baptism of church membership or just to pray, I pray help them to be prompted by your spirit and be obedient to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with us, please, 282 in your hymn book, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, I would invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible to show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved. If you are saved and God has spoken to your heart about matters, then I'd invite you to come and you and Him do business. Whatever the case is, the invitation is open and it's for you and me. You do what you need to do, would you? As we sing, 282, verse 1, first word together. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much for your attention, your time, for being with us, and I hope that uh, you'll take note that it is before 12 o'clock.
Mark it in your Bible, Romans chapter 1, first 1, okay? Hope you'll do that. God bless you. Be back with us for the evening service. Brother Petit will be here. Hope you'll come and share in that service. An important time when any of our missionaries come to report to the church. They see this as we do as a great responsibility. We support them and we'd like to know what they've been doing. And this is their chance to do it. And they want to do it. We're delighted in that. So please come. Be with us 6 o'clock for the evening service tonight. May the Lord bless you. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be in Sunday school this morning, in the worship service, and now we look forward to the evening service. And we pray you'll bless the petites as they travel in, give them safety and protection. Thank you for the work of the ministry they accomplished there in Japan. Pray that you'll bless their presentation this evening as they report to the church on that which they've been working and doing for the past time of their furlough. Thank you for the blessing that you've given to all of us here at the New Life Baptist Church over these days. Thank you for the time with family and friends, for the holidays, and pray now that we be cognizant of our responsibility to once again enter into a battle that's yours. And help us, Father, to fight the good fight as a soldier of the cross, be a witness and a testimony for you wherever we go. Guide us now as we go from this place. Give safety and protection to your people, and pray you'll get us back for the evening service tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.